Right. Well, it is really good to have you here today, and I'm grateful for your uh, concern to gather and to worship. Some of our friends have made some other choices today, and um, some of you may be trying to multitask today. So let me just be clear, if uh, you're keeping up with what's happening with the Seahawks, I don't want to know. All right? So, you know, I love you guys. I try to pray God's blessings on you all the time. But if you tell me the score, I'll pray something else. All right. In just a few minutes, I uh, will be doing some reading from John chapter 6, the Gospel of John chapter 6, if you want to find that and read along in just a moment. We're talking about how God is at move in our world and around our lives and in us. And if we're going to be a part of His movement, then we've got to uh, get in concert with Him. We've got to get in the flow with Him. And so here's the, uh, the deal. God is at work expanding His kingdom, manifesting His glory, and redeeming people. Uh, bringing us from a state of lostness and a state of disconnection to a state of relationship and a state of intimacy with Him. And so if that happens for you, then a move begins to happen in you. And just as He is at at work and moving all around us, uh, you begin to follow Him in that. You begin to be in the flow of that. And where God is, you are. And what God's doing, you're doing. And what God's concerned about, you become concerned about. And there's this concert of living that begins to go on with you and with Him. And uh, I'm, I'm starting with where I'm going to end, and that's this. What that demands from you and from me is that we believe that to the point that we repent and stop doing life our own way with our own agenda, and we begin to do it His way with His agenda. And we begin to surrender so that we're not the Lord of our lives anymore, but He is. We're not the one calling your shots anymore, but He is. And we follow. Believe, repent, surrender, and follow. So that's where we're going to end today as well. And uh, I, I would appreciate if you paid attention in between those bookends, but here we go. So what's that look like and what is it not look like. This past summer, a lot of us were enjoying the uh, Olympics, and uh, gymnastics was one of the things that particularly uh, I enjoyed and caught my attention, and I was taken, as were a lot of Americans, with Gabby Douglas, who uh, excelled and uh, got a couple of gold medals. She's got quite the story, if you've not uh, followed it, and I won't go into all the detail of it, but uh, she became uh, adept at gymnastics at a young age. And by the time she was 14, she moved from living with her family uh, over on the East Coast over into Middle America so that she could be with a premier coach. And it paid off after a couple of years of his coaching. She enters the Olympics. She gets a couple of gold medals. And as a 17-year-old young woman, uh, it's a remarkable story uh, that is hers. She's had some family challenges and some father issues and a lot of things that, that uh, are intriguing about her life. But I say all that to say this. Even though I am an admirer of hers, I am not a follower of hers. 
I had not been to the gym since I saw her performance and tumbled on a mat, walked a beam, swung on a bar, and guess what? I had no intention of doing any of that. So I am an admirer who is impressed with her. But if I was going to be a follower of her, then I'd begin to be devoted to the kind of life that she lives. If I was going to be a follower of her, I'd begin to go and practice hours a day on the various routines that she does. But I'm not devoted. I'm just impressed. I applaud all that she has been able to do. I even applaud who she is. But I am not going to surrender to her life and to her way of conducting herself in a day-by-day kind of way. And I approve greatly of who she is becoming and some of the values that she holds and so on, but I'm not going to be obeying her. And I think you begin to get the picture. There's a vast difference between being a fan of someone and being a follower. And here's the reality in America. There's a lot of people that have become fans of Jesus. Churches are filled with people who are impressed with him, who applaud him, who approve of him, admire him, but they don't follow him. They don't surrender to him. They don't obey him. They don't do his life that he emulates. So, when Jesus began to have groups of people, large crowds began to follow him, he began to make a a kind of demarcation in what was going on in that experience. And near the end of the Sermon on the Mount, he began to say to these large crowds that were gathering, uh, you're going to have to follow me now. You're going to have to say no to your life, deny yourself, and come after me. And many chose not to. But there were some who got it and who began to have kind of this confession, if we put it in today's language, that I'd rather have the person in the life of Jesus more than anything else in the world. They would articulate it this way. He is the treasure of my life. There's nothing that I wouldn't give up or do so that I could know him and have him in my life. And that's what we're talking about as you're transitioning and moving from just a fan to being a follower. That New Testament pattern of encountering Jesus looks something like this. There were strangers who might come up close and personal and become admirers, and some of those would even become followers. But here's what you know. You've seen it in the New Testament. Not every stranger became an admirer, right? Pilate never began to admire Jesus. Herod never began to admire Jesus. They were in proximity to him, but they never even became an admirer. Now, several became admirers, but they didn't always become followers, right? And the rich young ruler is a case in point. We'll talk more about that in just a moment. As we think about our contemporary culture today, we could probably add a fourth category, and it'd be between admirer and follower, and that is user. Because what's happened in contemporary American culture is this. We have so 
caricatured what and who Jesus is and what his movement is all about, that we've minimized it down to this notion of, well, yeah, I want to go to heaven. I definitely don't want to go to hell. And we've kind of created this cartoonish image of heaven as a pleasure factory and hell as this awfully to be avoided kind of dungeon thing for all eternity. So yeah, who in their right mind wouldn't want heaven and want to escape hell? And so we've come to see Jesus as a ticket, a means to an end, and he's not the end. So we've made accepting Jesus kind of this minimal entrance requirement to heaven. And friend, you won't find that anywhere in the New Testament. Jesus is not the means to the end. Jesus is the end. Jesus is heaven. It's not this cartoonish pleasure factory, place of gold and precious jewels, and I get to be happy and I have a mansion and all these kinds of things. No, heaven is Jesus. It's where he is. It's how I get to experience him. It's this manifest uh, explosion of his glory all around and in me and others who have become followers of his in this world. Now, what Jesus began to do because of all the admirers and fans that were beginning to accumulate was he began to uh, help them ask questions that would delineate whether or not they were a true follower or not. So we're going to ask a couple of those questions. We're going to get into a couple of those conversations. But before we do, let me ask you this. How do you know if you're a follower? How do you know that? Here's what often happens. We do a cultural comparison. We compare ourselves to someone else. Well, I'm sure I'm better off than he is. Holy cow. I'm much more moral, I'm much more kind, I'm much more generous, I'm much more whatever than that person. So surely I'm good, what, to get into heaven. Or we'll talk about that religious ruler. We've measured ourselves by, well, I go worship while everybody else is watching the Seahawks game at home. I give my offerings. I volunteer in the nursery. I do this, I do that, I'm more moral, I I try to keep the commandments. And then some of us lean a little bit on that whole household heritage. Hey, my dad was an elder in the church. My mom led the children's ministry. We always went, we did these things. It's kind of like, you know, my parents bought that membership at the Y, and I was a member, therefore, of the Y. As long as they paid their fee, I was in. So, you know, they they, they paid all the dues. I'm kind of in. And it just doesn't work that way. So, here's what Jesus did. He began to have conversations with people to clarify And uh, for those of you that are already laughing, you know, in John chapter 3, he has a conversation with a guy named Nicodemus. And it happened at night, so I'm just kind of thinking about it, Nick at night. So if you uh, are familiar with the story, 
uh, Jesus is out on the outskirts of town and Nicodemus, who is a religious leader, who definitely in the comparison game is far and above, you know, more holy than a whole lot of other people in terms of the religious rule. I mean, he kept them all. He was exemplary in every kind of way. He came from that kind of heritage as well. So you would think he has every mark hit about being a follower of God, a worshiper of God, having it all right and reconciled with God. So he's kind of impressed with this Jesus. He's taken with how Jesus teaches and the authority of Jesus' teaching. He's been impressed with the miracles. He's secretly, because so many of the Sanhedrin, so many of the other religious leaders are despising Jesus, he's secretly been a fan. And that's why he comes at night. He doesn't go seek Jesus out when Jesus is in the marketplace and he's got all these other people around him. No, Jesus is out in the garden one night or out in the uh, olive grove or whatever. And he goes and secretly at night wants to have a little meeting with Jesus. And uh, as he begins to talk about his admiration for Jesus, hey, I'm impressed that you must be a man of God, blah, blah, blah. Jesus says, wait a minute, Nick. You can't enter the kingdom of God. The rule, the reign, the experience, the connection. You can't enter into all that until and unless you are born again. Until and unless this heavenly divine nature begins to consume you and take over your life, birth you anew. I guess what? Nick got that. Believe that. Repented from just being a good, moral, religious person. Surrendered to Christ and began to follow Christ. At the end of Jesus' earthly ministry and life, at the crucifixion time, Nick is there. When Jesus is now uh, being off of the cross and being taken to burial, he's there. Something remarkable has happened in his life. There's another conversation that takes place in Matthew 19. And this happens with, uh, shall we say, a wealthy, young, cool, uh, impressive guy. Also known as a rich young ruler. And this guy not only has uh, success and has not only got this impressive life, he's kind of thorough. So he wants to make sure that things are cool, that he's going to be able to go to heaven someday when he dies. And so he approaches Jesus one day and says, Oh, good teacher. See, I admire you. I I see the awesome things that you do and say. What else do I have to do to go to heaven? Now, Jesus knows he's got a project here. He's got a situation with this guy because this guy's full of himself. He goes, Well, um, keep the commandments. And the guy said, hey, I'm glad you said that because I do. I do this, I do this, I do this. I rattle off a list. I keep all those commandments. Anything else? And Jesus lovingly and graciously says, yeah, one more thing. Why don't you sell everything you've got and give it to the poor and follow me? (laughs) I'm sorry, what did you say? And it was such a shock to the system. It was so outside of the box this guy created about what it means to be squared up with God and going to heaven someday when you die. There was no way 
And actually what Jesus did with that question was reveal what is truly important to the man. What is really his God? And it was his stuff, his persona, his place in life. And the scripture, it's one of the most awful phrases, I think, in the Bible. The scripture says, he walked away sad. Because he was not going to be a follower. Clarifying questions. Clarifying conversations with Jesus. In John chapter 6, we have one of those really powerful, poignant kinds of clarifying encounters. So Jesus, as you start off the chapter, does this wondrous miracle. He's been teaching. A large crowd begins to gather. It gets late in the day. They're all hungry. And he has this little faith lesson with his disciples. And he says, we need to feed these people. Thousands of them. He says, "Uh, how are we going to feed them? You guys got a plan? And the disciples... uh, and Mark, you should appreciate this, had incredible trust issues. No, we don't have a plan. How can we do this? Even if we had enough money, we couldn't even buy enough food. And even if we could buy enough food, there's not enough bakeries to make the food. Blah, blah, blah. They had the whole thing laid out about the impossibility of the moment. And, of course, Andrew comes up, gives the Lord the sack lunch that he stole from, I mean, took from a kid. He said, but what is this? Just, you know, a few loaves and a little fish. And, of course, Jesus multiplies the loaves and the fish. And like 5,000 men, not to mention women and children, thousands and thousands of people are fed miraculously. Now, note what happens. The thousands are just now crazy about Jesus. How awesome is he? And uh, they are so taken with his being able to feed them they decide that they want to hang out with him. They want to go where he goes and, and be where he is. So in the night, Jesus says to his 12, we're going to go over on the other side of the lake. right? So they go over and they, they kind of get away. The next day, all this crowd begins to recognize Jesus isn't here. He's not, he's not around. Let's go find where he is. And so they go in pursuit. They find out where Jesus is and they catch up to him. They go, where'd you go? You left without telling us. Uh, we're here. And Jesus says to them, you know what? I tell you the truth. You want to be with me because I fed you. Not because you understood the miraculous sign. See, this wasn't about a free lunch. This was a sign for you. This was to help faith. This was to help draw your heart and connect your heart to an eternal God who loves you beyond your comprehension. They're still not getting it. So in verse 35, Jesus has to clarify because they're saying, well, wait a minute. Moses gave a sign. Would you give us another sign? He goes, I gave you a sign. Well, would you give us another sign? Moses did. I mean, when our ancestors were out in the wilderness, he would give them manna every day, bread from heaven. And Jesus said, Moses didn't give anybody anything. God did. And that same God is giving you me. And in verse 35, he emphatically declared, I am the bread of life. 
whoever comes to me will never be hungry again. Now, that didn't still compute, didn't click, didn't connect with their head and their heart, and they're still pressing for a sign, still pressing for Jesus to do something else that would be impressive, that would help them. And he keeps pressing further down to say, that's not what it's about. It's about following me. It's about surrendering your life. It's about having my life for your life. And... The rest of the story goes like this. At this point, many of his disciples turned away. Many of the thousands deserted him. Then Jesus turned to the twelve and asked, Are you also going to leave? You see, friend, um, Jesus, who is God, is impressive. He is admirable. He is amazing. He is awesome. And He is Lord. And so it's not enough to be impressed, to applaud, to be in awe, and to want more of the show. It calls for surrender. It calls for obedience. It calls for His Lordship in our lives to be a part of that movement that He's up to. So, let's just run through a couple of clarifying questions for ourselves. And we'll put it under this guise. What is it that you really believe? You know, well, I believe in Jesus. I I believe He died. I, I believe He atoned for sin. I believe He resurrected. I believe He ascended. I mean, that's like good enough to get into heaven, right? And what we're talking about is a belief that is so core to who you are that it changes the way you do life every day and every moment. So let's see how do we believe. Jesus said, it's better to give than to receive. Have you begun to follow Christ so that it's changed your heart about stuff? about things, about money. And as Paul later admonished and taught, you become a cheerful giver. It's a part of your DNA now to be generous, to seek to bless others in the name of Christ. Do you believe that to the core? It's better to give than to receive. Do you believe at the core of who you are? You must lose your life in order to gain life. In other words, real life is found by my giving what I consider to be my life away. I am going to be at the disposal of those who have need. I'm going to care about the poor. I'm going to care about the oppressed. I'm going to care about those who are suffering from injustices. I'm going to be involved in the mess of others' lives in a caring, loving, supportive, redemptive kind of way. I'm going to serve people, if you will. In which, by the way, Jesus said... We are to be servants, not masters. Do you believe that? Do you believe it's better to be a servant of Christ in this world than to be somebody in charge? Have others serve you? Jesus said, having lust in the heart is being adulterous. 
see, if I believe that, then I'm going to be working with Christ to slay, to murder lust in my heart so that I'm free of that. Because his call to me is a life of faithfulness. And a life of faithfulness is nurtured within my marriage and in my family so that I have a life of faithfulness beyond in all of my other relationships and unto the Lord. See, we've made trusting in Jesus code for are you, are you going to go to heaven when you die? And trusting in Jesus is about a life that begins here and there, here and now and goes on forever. It's not about a ticket to some other place. Trusting in Jesus means that you believe in your core. He's right. Say right about what? Right about anything. Right about everything. And I'm going to surrender to that. I'm going to obey that. I'm going to follow Him in every aspect, every nuance of life. Now, friend, if that's not where it is for you, then Christ following is not what's going on for you. Some aspect of Christ fandom or Christ usury is going on, but not, not Christ fellowship. And so let me end where I began. Will you believe? Is this the truth? Is everything about the person and the life and the call of Jesus true? Is it right? And if so, will I repent? Will I stop doing anything other than what Christ is about and what Christ is calling for and what Christ demands? Will I surrender to His person and to His purpose and to His plan? Will I follow? Let me pray for you about that. So Lord, uh, just as you were gracious with Nicodemus and with the rich young ruler, you've been gracious with us today to pose some clarifying questions. And I just pray for my friends today that as we have greater clarity, we might believe and repent, surrender and follow. Father, would you powerfully work in our heart in those ways. In Jesus' name, amen.